0: Welcome to Skim This. This week, all eyes are on Haiti, where the country's president was murdered yesterday. We'll tell you why that likely spells more bad news for the already unstable Caribbean nation. Then, we're checking in on three stories from recent episodes to see what's changed about the Delta variant, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the job market. Later, the Tokyo Olympics were already a hot mess. Now, even qualifying for the Games is causing drama. We'll break down the controversy and look forward to the athletes whose performances could still save the day. And finally, we'll take a trip down memory lane to pay tribute to the Spice Girls on the 25th anniversary of their debut song. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming from A to Z. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this.
1: We have breaking news from Haiti, where the country's president is dead this morning, assassinated in what's being described as a middle-of-the-night attack.
0: On Wednesday, gunmen assassinated the Caribbean country's president, Jovenel Moise, in his home. The attack also left his wife in critical condition. So far, police have killed four suspects and arrested two others— all of whom are believed to be well-trained killers who allegedly impersonated DEA agents to enter the president's home. The assassination of any president in any country would put a community into mourning and potentially into chaos. But Haiti's been far from calm for a long time. One of the reasons? Moise had been ruling by decree for the past year, worrying people that he was turning into a dictator because he refused to hold elections. In response, Haitians took to the streets, protesting his alleged corruption and attempt to hold on to power. Not to mention, Haiti is in economically bad shape, and its people are the ones who suffer. An estimated 60% of Haiti's 11 million citizens live below the poverty line. Violent crime has also been on the rise. Add an assassination to that, and what happens next? To find out, we called up Dr. Alyssa Goldstein-Seppenwell, a professor of history at California State University, San Marcos. She told us what's going on in Haiti matters to the United States, mainly because we haven't exactly been the best at supporting free and fair elections in the country.
2: So I'll say first, it's a moral issue. Like you break it, you bought it. We are not often aware of the many ways that we have intervened, often in harmful ways, against Haiti. The president of Haiti was extremely unpopular with Haitians. The election that he won was contested. Many people said it was not a fair election. Every Sunday, you saw Haitians demonstrating to try to get him out. And who are they demonstrating against? Not just him, but us. Because we, the Biden administration,
0: And the U.N. were pretty much the only
2: people keeping him in power.
0: She also told us that in addition to the U.S. maybe having a moral obligation to care about Haiti's future, what's going on there matters practically. Haiti and the U.S. are physically close, and the two countries have a long history of relying on each other in times of need.
2: There have been close ties between the two countries, and when Haitians need to flee, one place that they try to come is here. And when we have welcomed them with dignity and allowed them to come, Haitians have done a lot to help the U.S. During the COVID epidemic, a lot of healthcare workers, nursing home workers, doctors, nurses, scientists are Haitian Americans. When we have not welcomed them with dignity, the last time we had this kind of chaos in Haiti in the mid-90s, you had Haitians washing up on the shores of Florida, dead from trying to get to the United States the only way that they could. So I think, again, this is a moral (laughs) issue for us, but also there are very real ways in which chaos in Haiti affects us.
0: If you're thinking fixing Haiti's economy, political instability, and rising violence is too much, and that the country is destined for chaos, Dr. Goldstein-Seppenwell says Haitians don't want help. They just want elections.
2: What they want right now is the same thing that they have wanted all year, and that is the freedom to choose their own leaders. So yes, in that sense, we have a very direct responsibility now to do what people have been asking us to do, which is to allow real democracy in Haiti and to allow for a transitional government composed of the opposition parties to choose someone who Haitians really want to rule themselves That's what I'm still hoping can happen, even though right now I think it's a very dark and confusing time.
0: It's hard to believe, but this is the 353rd episode of Skim This. That's a lot. And for those of you who've been skimming the news with us for a while, we wanted to present a new segment called Following Up, And no, we're not talking about your boss asking you for that thing again. It's where we check in on a few stories from past episodes and see how things played out, keeping the context brief and focusing on what's new. Let's start with COVID. Last week, we asked a doctor what do we need to know about the Delta variant, and she told us it's the variant of COVID that's taking over a lot of the world. Turns out, that was a good prediction. Because just this week, the CDC announced that Delta is now the dominant variant in the U.S. and is accounting for just over 50% of new cases. Delta is the most transmissible of all the COVID variants, meaning unvaccinated people are at greatest risk of getting sick. But what about people who already got the shot? Last week, we didn't have data on that. But this week, we do, thanks to Israel. On Monday, Israel's health ministry released the first nationwide study on how well Pfizer's COVID vaccine protects against this variant. Remember, the Pfizer vaccine typically has a 95% effectiveness rate after two doses. Against Delta, though, that rate dropped to 64% in Israel. We should point out that while the vaccine's overall effectiveness declined, it was still 93% effective in preventing hospitalizations and severe illness caused by Delta. So that's one country and one data set about one vaccine. As for the other two shots available in the U.S., Moderna and Johnson & Johnson have both released early data showing their shots also protected against Delta, but we've yet to see data about them that's comparable to what we just got about the Pfizer vaccine from Israel. And even that one Israeli study serves as a warning that COVID cases will likely go up as vaccination rates remain pretty flat around the U.S., A recent nonprofit study found that at least 12 states with below-average vaccination rates, including Nevada, Utah, Florida, and South Carolina, are all at high risk for COVID spikes. But whether that warning leads to any change in behavior is TBD. Whether it's protecting against the original strains of COVID or newer variants, the vaccines available for free in the U.S. have been pretty effective all along. So news about Delta may not change the minds of those choosing not to roll up their sleeves. The second story we're following up on is about Afghanistan, where the U.S. has been fighting the longest war in our nation's history, for 19 years, nine months, and counting. Here's what we had to say on our episode back on April 15th. This week, President Biden announced that by September 11th, the 2,500 or so US troops still in Afghanistan will be gone. And even though Biden sounds pretty convinced about withdrawing, get ready for a lot of media coverage warning that leaving Afghanistan, even after 20 years, is surrender or puts Afghan civilians in danger. So it's been a few months. How's the US withdrawal from Afghanistan going? The short answer is it's going and it might even be ahead of schedule. Last week, the U.S. abandoned the massive Bagram Airbase, reportedly leaving in the middle of the night and without warning. So while the U.S. looks pretty committed to leaving at this point, we were definitely right that there'd be a ton of coverage describing the U.S. withdrawal as a risk to Afghans. Just turn on cable news.
3: It looks like we're getting out in a very sloppy, haphazard manner.
0: I think it's particularly grotesque. The devastation and and the the killings and women, humanitarian crisis, fleeing across the border. The U.S. intelligence community reportedly thinks the Afghan government could collapse within six months of the U.S. leaving. And even the U.N. predicts the Taliban's influence will grow when foreign troops leave. And that moment could be coming soon. This week, the U.S. military announced it's now more than 90 percent withdrawn, And a complete withdrawal could just be days away at this point, which means there may not be much work left for the U.S. to do in Afghanistan, except for one thing both Democrats and Republicans in Congress say is the least we can do, helping out those who've helped us. That means resettling the 17,000 plus Afghans who worked with Americans and allied troops during the war to the U.S., along with more than 50,000 family members. But finishing that before the U.S.'s scheduled departure by September 11th is looking unlikely, meaning thousands of Afghans might have to wait for their visas potentially for years as the Taliban fights to take control of the country. And the final story we're following up on this week has to do with the number of job openings in the U.S. We did a deep dive on this last week, talking about why millions of jobs are going unfilled which industries they're in, and why Americans aren't taking them. But we were stuck using data from April to tell part of that story. Could somebody from the U.S. government please update this spreadsheet? And this week, they just did. On Wednesday, the government announced that as of the last day in May, there were a record 9.2 million job openings in the U.S., No surprise here, two industries that seem to be the most desperate for new workers are hotels and restaurants, which posted almost 90,000 new jobs in May. Around 80,000 healthcare jobs also opened up that month. It's too early to tell whether we've reached peak job openings, but one sign that might be the case is that the number of people voluntarily quitting their jobs started dropping between April and May. Though considering that number was still 3.6 million, it's safe to say a lot of Americans still feel like the grass is greener somewhere else. How'd we do? If you'd like us to follow up on a story from a recent episode, send us your suggestions to audio@theskim.com. If you visited a gas station lately, chances are your bill is up quite a bit. This week, gas prices are on track to hit a seven-year high. Here's why it's so expensive to fill up our tanks right now. Oil prices are largely a result of supply and demand. And last April, with the pandemic in full swing, oil demand was about as high as my desire to get on a crowded subway. Plus, Saudi Arabia and Russia started pumping out way more oil than there was demand for, vying for larger shares of the world's oil market. And as a result, the nearly two dozen countries that produce almost half the world's oil, known as OPEC+, found themselves with way too much oil on their hands and nobody to buy it. Prices dropped as a result. But now, oil consumption is back up as some economies enter their post-pandemic, everything-is-normal-again rhythms. And according to AAA, that's caused prices to jump 40% since the start of the year. So how long is this going to last? Well, nobody's actually sure. OPEC countries recently met to decide whether to boost production so prices wouldn't keep soaring out of control. Side note, while higher prices are good for oil producers, when prices get too high, people stop driving, and demand, along with prices, falls. While that seems like an outcome worth avoiding by producing more oil, not everyone was on board, especially the United Arab Emirates. And as a result of that disagreement, the whole meeting ended in a stalemate. In the meantime, it's probably worth budgeting for higher gas prices for the foreseeable future. AAA predicts prices could jump another 10 to 20% by the end of August. The Tokyo Olympics haven't even started yet, and somebody give drama a gold medal.
2: The Olympics is very broken.
1: When you're the best in the world, people get obsessed. You say, I have high testosterone. Of course I do. So what?
0: It seems to be the theme of this is to try to exclude certain people from competing.
1: In a tradition of aquatic apartheid... I'm not going to stop saying it. That sounds about white. That sounds about white. It's because it is. Get off this high boss, man. Weed? Weed? Banning a girl from weed?
0: There are three pre-Olympic controversies we've been watching lately, and each is pretty different. In one, the International Swimming Federation has ruled that swim caps for black hair don't follow, quote, the natural form of the head. That decision has led prominent voices in the black swimming community to say this decision cements the impression that elite swimming isn't meant for them. In another controversy, two female sprinters from Namibia were judged to be ineligible to compete at the Olympics because of their naturally high levels of testosterone. Another former Olympic gold medalist from South Africa, Castor Semenya, refused to suppress her naturally high testosterone levels, effectively locking her out of competing in Tokyo. And the final controversy a lot of people are talking about involves American runner Sha'Carri Richardson, whose crazy fast 100-meter dash time and qualifiers put her on pace for gold in Tokyo. Except her time was disqualified, and she was left off the Olympic team after testing positive for THC in a drug test. Turns out, despite weed being legal in the state where Richardson smoked, and a lot of us thinking weed can make you faster, it's still banned by the World Anti-Doping Agency. To break down how these stories fit together, and why they're causing a lot of people to be frustrated with the Olympics… We called up Kavitha Davidson. She's the sports and culture writer at The Athletic, where she hosts the podcast Culture Calculus. Can you just like walk us through how did these three really different stories overlap and why have they gotten the attention and the outrage that they have gotten?
3: Yeah. And I'll add to the three, um, the kind of controversy about Gwen Berry turning her back to the flag during the national anthem as it played at the podium ceremony when she qualified for the Olympics at Hammer Throw. It seems like all of these regulations are either targeting or at the very least negatively affecting Black women. It's
0: just like there's no kind of other way to put that. Talk to me about the context surrounding the swim cap controversy. The history with the swim caps
3: thing is really complicated and really longstanding. We've had a lot of conversations in the United States about both hair politics, the politics about the standards of beauty, but also the standards of professionalism that are placed on Black women who choose to wear their hair naturally when it is textured. And that context, I think, is both really specific to the United States, but also not the other part of that context is also the history that the United States has had of denying black people access to the water, access to pools, to public pools, access to beaches, segregated beaches and things like that. You know, historically, the stereotype of Black people not being able to swim does ring true because of this history of segregation of public water spaces. And this is part of what has led to this compound effect of both the stereotype of Black people not being able to swim and also of relegating Black athletes to sports outside of the water. So when we have swimmers black swimmers reach the highest level, they have to to overcome not only like their own personal barriers, but they've also had to overcome decades of history that have denied them historical affinity toward the water. And that all is wrapped
0: into this history with the swim caps. After a ton of controversy, the International Swimming Federation said, we're going to review this decision to ban sole caps from competition. But so far, there's been no word on whether they've officially changed their minds. The other headline we mentioned earlier is about female sprinters being told you can't compete because of the natural testosterone levels in your body. Davidson has some thoughts on that ban. When you talk about testosterone levels, (laughs) we're having all kinds of conversations
3: right now about allowing trans athletes in sports. And I don't want to conflate those two because these two runners that you've mentioned and the history with Castor Semenya as well are biological women, gender identified as women as well. And they just naturally have higher levels of testosterone. And basically we are treating their bodies as performance enhancing drugs, even though these are naturally occurring in their bodies. And for example, Michael Phelps has And completely irregularly built heart and his entire body is kind of a freak of nature and has served him extremely well in in sports. And we don't treat him as having an unfair advantage, even though he obviously has a a built
0: in biological physical advantage there. Meanwhile, Shakari Richardson's story had people fuming about another potentially outdated rule around qualification. Her suspension as a result of testing positive for a THC would have ended before the relay event, but USA track and field still declined to put Richardson on the team.
3: When we talk about Shakari Richardson um, and a marijuana ban, I think that this is where it gets a little bit more complicated because I personally am very upset that she will not be competing on its face when it comes to Shakari herself. I don't think that this is about targeting a Black woman who smoked pot. But the history of why marijuana bans exist in the first place, why world over countries have adopted similar laws when it comes to drug policy, as the United States has had, is absolutely rooted and based in race.
0: So far, U.S. anti-doping officials and President Biden are saying rules are rules. But a lot of celebs and athletes are supporting Richardson. And some lawmakers say this is a chance to change the policies on marijuana use. Zooming out, usually the Olympics feel like a really exciting event where we can all rally around whatever teams we're cheering for. But this year, that Olympic flame has been tamped down a lot between a global pandemic, a state of emergency in Japan, and a lot of athletes being disqualified. Davidson hopes soon we'll hopefully remember the best part of the Games, watching amazing athletes. What are you looking most forward to? Simone Biles. I mean, you know, yeah. just, we're, we're lucky to watch
3: her at this point. We're going to watch her perform a move off the vault that has never been done by a woman in international competition before, and it's going to be amazing. And then I'm also really curious about who will be competing in tennis, especially after what we saw at Roland Garros and at Wimbledon with some certain players dropping out and also players like Serena getting injured so that's that and then just as a really like silly like kind of bizarre storyline Bruce Springsteen's daughter is competing in the Olympics in equestrian so I saw that (laughs) yeah who knew who Who knew knew. I so I I will be I will be following her as well
0: (laughs) before we go we have to tell you about a very important anniversary if you want to be my lover this week marks 25 years since the Spice Girls released their debut hit single, Wannabe. And even though the team who works on this podcast is partial to Spice Up Your Life, the release of Wannabe kicked off years of Spice Girls domination.
1: All of a sudden you have these five incredible
0: women dressed in like these kind of charactery type outfits. That's Brittany Spanos. She's a senior writer for Rolling Stone magazine. And she told us, amazing outfits aside, the Spice Girls represented a new type of female in music.
1: This kind of movement of women being empowered, women being at the front, women running what they're doing. And the Spice Girls really represented that and ushered in like a whole new pop era.
0: That new era of pop also included a bunch of other girl groups like Destiny's Child, TLC, and the Pussycat Dolls. And while a few members of those groups became some of the biggest stars of our generation, like Beyonce, This whole Spice Girls anniversary had us wondering, where did all of the girl groups go? Spanos told us these types of groups typically don't stay together for long.
1: Vocal groups tend to have a really, really short life expectancy. I think because they're all singing, like there's so much competition. Who can be the lead vocalist and who's the star of the group? And a lot of those acts just sort of want to do their own thing.
0: Meanwhile, the boy bands seem to have it way easier. Both because there were a lot more of them, but also because culturally, women were pitted against each other.
1: It was like Back to Boys, Sync, 90 Degrees, just like all having a bunch of hits at once. And so I'm sure that sort of bred some, like, community for them, right? Where they were always performing at Jingle Balls together and Wingo Tangos and, like, all those things. I feel like it's just like they had a community that a lot of girl groups didn't always have. You know, I think there's a lot of, there can only be one. <laughs> and that's kind of ingrained in so much of our idea of... Pop culture and music, where having like two big female acts at once is like they have to be hating each other and they have to compete against each other.
0: Okay, so those are some hypotheses on where all the girl groups went. But don't stress, girl groups aren't gone for good.
1: Now we're seeing, you know, a lot of girl groups in K pop, and we have a bunch of them at once who all have huge fandoms who all bring something really unique to the table.
0: And if you're looking to spice up your listening habits, Spanos has some recommendations. Itzy and
1: Espa are two K-pop girl groups I really love, and they're just super fun, really, really new.
0: Still, even though we'll be checking out those new groups, the Spice Girls nostalgia this week is real.
1: I was obsessed with the Spice Girls. My friends and I used to watch Spice World on VHS all the time, like way, way too much. I had so much merch, just like an insane amount of... Spice Girls merchandise, like books, just like hair clips and stuff like that. And those songs were on constantly, like everywhere.
0: Yeah, I was listening to them yesterday and I was thinking I had (laughs) multiple Union Jack dresses. Like you would think you only need one, (laughs) but I had multiple, which was completely unnecessary. I wanted those
1: boots too. Like all the outfits were just so aspirational, like Scary Spice. Like I wanted to like pull off leopard print. And I'm glad that as I got older, I have embraced the Scary Spice fashion of my my
0: life. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Kira Long. This episode was engineered by Andrew Calloway. The Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.